Earlier this week, I was watching a TED video by a man named John Sutherland. He's an officer in the, uh, the London Police Department. He was explaining something in forensic science called Locard's Exchange Principle. Now, Dr. Edmund Locard was a French criminologist, and he was renowned for being a pioneer in forensic science and is sometimes called the Sherlock Holmes of France. This principle has a very simple premise, as it was explained. Every contact leaves a trace. In other words, every criminal leaves a trace behind him. Wherever he steps, whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously, will serve as a silent witness against him. Not only his fingerprints or his footprints, but his hair, the fibers from his clothes. All of these things Sutherland refers to as evidence that does not forget. And then he went on in this talk to explain how this principle has challenged him to realize that it's not just forensic science, but it applies to all human relationships. He makes the case that every time two people come into contact with one another, an exchange takes place. Whether between lifelong friends or passing strangers, we encourage, we ignore, we hold out a hand, we withdraw it, we move closer, we move away, we bless or we curse, and every single contact, he says, leaves a trace. So the way that we treat and regard one another matters. Officer Sutherland says, it really, really matters. And so as we have lived through yet another week with more tension and violence between people, it, it is confirmation of that truth, the, the way we treat one another really does matter. So this morning, we're going to look at an Old Testament character that never heard of the Lacard exchange principle, but indeed left quite a trace. In fact, an enormous positive mark, it would seem, upon everyone with whom she had an exchange. It's a woman by the name of Ruth. I'll bet you've heard of her as we have tracked through the Old Testament and looked at different individuals this summer. Remember, we're, we're asking those questions, what do we learn about God in this story? What do we learn about ourselves? Ruth left quite a mark. We find that there's an entire book, four chapters, but albeit an entire book, named after her, one of only two in the Bible with a woman's name. It is a story that is perhaps best known for being an example of, of, of a provision that is made in the law of Moses for a person who was forced to sell part of his property or himself into slavery. And I say him or himself because, as we know, it was a very patriarchal culture. And so it was... It was always the man that was responsible. The uh, principle is called that of the kinsman redeemer. 
It meant that if he had to sell a part of his property or himself, his nearest of kin could step in and buy back what his relative was forced to sell. We find instructions about that in Leviticus chapter 25. So whatever was redeemed became the property of the kinsman until the indebted family member could pay it back or until the year of Jubilee when the property would be returned to the original owner. It is a marvelous picture of Christ as our kinsman redeemer purchasing us for himself. The story of Ruth is also, if you've read it, a great love story. So I want to encourage you to be sure and read the rest of Ruth this afternoon, if it's been a while since you've read it or if you've never read it. Because this morning, we're only going to look at a text in chapter 1. And I want to pick a couple of things that, <clears throat> that I have found fascinating and, and also very convicting as I have, have read and studied this text this week. Neither one of them has to do with kinsman redeemer or the concept of, of love story. It's a, it's a bit of a different spin on Ruth. Dave may, in fact, go back to the Department of Ministry and say, you know, my colleague is a heretic. Um, <clears throat> but Dave, I've got to tell you, the more I've thought about this, I think I'm right. But that's what all heretics have thought throughout the centuries. Yeah, I'm going against the flow, but I'm right. <clears throat> so my apologies uh, I gave to, to Rick earlier. Rick Baldacci, this is his favorite Old Testament story. The story of Ruth is set during the time of the judges. It was a period of probably three to 400 years between the death of Joshua, the conquering of, of the land of Canaan by the people of Israel, until the rise of King Saul. And the record of the judges shows us that it was a time of real moral bankruptcy. There was all kinds of disunity amongst the different tribes of Israel. And, and there was always, always oppression from other people groups who lived in the land. Okay, so that's kind of the setting. Let's stand and let's read a part of this story together from chapter 1 of Ruth. Here we go. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together went with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband." 
Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. My sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. She was uh, a stubborn woman, that Ruth. More stubborn than her uh, her mother-in-law. So the story begins, we've read, with Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons left their town of Bethlehem in Judah and went to Moab because of a famine in their land. Now, the people of Moab were known as, you would suspect, Moabites. They were a neighboring nation. They were already in the land when when Israel came into the land. They were an ancient people group there. And they were there from the time of the conquering of the land to, as far as we know, the, the close of the Old Testament, probably beyond that. And they're always referred to negatively. Nothing positive ever said about Moab. They are described in Jeremiah and a little bit in 1 Kings as as a prosperous and confident and mighty people, but but also described as as arrogant and idolatrous. They, They worshiped the gods, Chemosh and the Baal of Peor, Numbers tells us that story. And God cursed them because of their antagonism and their arrogance, specifically toward the people of Israel. Now, do you remember the story of Lot and his daughters in Genesis chapter 19? It's one of the R-rated stories in the Old Testament. Yeah. You remember they were living in the mountains outside of the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah had been. God had destroyed it. Lot's daughters believed that there were no men left in the region to marry. So what did they do? They got their father drunk and then they slept with him. In order to get pregnant, in order to preserve 
their family line. They both gave birth to sons, and those sons' names were Moab, who we're told is the father of the Moabites, and Ammon, who is the father of the Ammonites. Don, can we put that next text up from Deuteronomy? Now, knowing what you know, what you've heard, what we've read together, uh, next, do we have the one from Deuteronomy? Chapter 23, here we go. Pro, no, no problem. Prohibitions that were, were given to the Israelites in terms of their relationship to certain people groups in the land. Listen to what is spoken to them. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. They asked for permission to pass through the territory. Permission denied. Hospitality denied. Huge in that culture. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Naharim to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you, spoken to the Israelite people. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them, Moabites, Ammonites, for as long as you live. Okay, you heard that, right? You remember some of what we have read in the introduction to our story of Ruth this morning? How about our next slide, Don? <clears throat> and they went to Moab, and they lived there, Elimelech. Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Okay, here's what I want you to ask your neighbor. What are we, the readers of this story, to make of Ruth... Being a Moabite. Now, if you've read the whole story of Ruth, which we don't have time to do this morning and talk about, you know that Ruth is the hero in the story. It's an incredible story. So what are we, the readers of the story, to make of Ruth, the hero, being a Moabite? Ask your neighbor what they think. There was not the, the normal level of enthusiastic conversation happening here this morning. What do you think? What do you think? Ooh. Now, don't be getting personal here. You got the package deal. You remember, he wasn't the first choice. And the other one said, no, no, can't do that. <laughs> Amen, let's go home. <laughs> Good stuff, good stuff. I, I, you're, you're tracking along the lines that, that I think are important for us to, to track. You know, there's, there's some belief um, in, in some of the older Jewish rabbinical traditions that suggest the reason that Ruth's two sons died was punishment for marrying Moabite women. Now, the writer of the story doesn't give us any hint towards that, but, but given what we, we read in Deuteronomy 23, that's, that's not unreasonable. 
It's also fascinating to read some of the commentaries and some of the opinions on, on the blessings that came to Ruth, though she was a member of that cursed Moabite people. Go figure. And more than just some blessings. Are you aware of who her great-grandson was? King David. And that's laid out for us in Matthew's genealogy where he comes to the end, Jesus, and has shown us the genealogy of of Jesus and, and all of the generations that led up to the birth of Christ. Personally, I could not help thinking all week long that, that the writer of the story, and, and we, don't, we don't know who wrote Ruth, the writer, I think, wants us to think about a couple of truths that, that really need to grab our hearts and, and shape the way that, that we live Lord willing, on on a daily basis. So if I can talk about two lessons from Ruth, I want to say it this way. There is one lesson that comes from the story of Ruth, and there is one lesson that I think comes from the woman of Ruth. The lesson from the story is is one that we know, and, and, and you've hit on it in your comments right on. But it's good to be reminded, maybe even more so in these days in which we find ourselves living with tension and and stuff just rising up all the time. You know, another week of what feels like is in some ways becoming the new normal. Tensions and verbalizing and and political posturing and, and violence. And I need to to make a confession to you that I made to the Wednesday night prayer group. And I don't like saying these kinds of things about myself, but I want you to know, because this first point really hits home with me. When I read about groups like the KKK, the neo-Nazis, the white supremacist groups, I don't think nice things about those groups. To be truthful, I find that what starts to rise up in my spirit is a hatred for the hatred that they show to other people. It's just like this switch that's almost automatic. I feel such disgust for those groups. And to be boldly honest, I, I want to put groups like that into the Moabite category. Surely, God must think them disgusting and will deal with them in a way that I think they deserve to be dealt with. I know that God loves them, but the thought, and I'm just being boldly honest here, there's There are times when the thought of God redeeming them and pardoning their sin is not what I have in mind for what God needs to do with them. And I share that with you because when I give you this lesson one, 
I wrestle with it. God's redeeming grace knows no bounds. God's redeeming grace knows no bounds, period. Here is a story that begins in direct, if not disobedience, at least disregard to what God has said. Two young men who I'm guessing probably knew better. A father who probably knew better, who it seems may have shirked his responsibility to challenge his sons about their marital choices. Come to think of it, what the heck were they doing in Moab to begin with? But what does God do? Now, it may be possible that the rabbis are right, and he did deal harshly with those who knew better. Scripture doesn't tell us. But what God does do is deal graciously with the Moabite. You know, you're tempted to say, come on, Lord, just one little mistake. And he deals graciously with the Moabite. The one who didn't know better. And the reality of this is that God is at work in the lives of people even now who I don't think deserve it. Perhaps you can share that sentiment. People everywhere that that do not know better, people that, that just ought not to be treated well. The story, the bigger picture of the story, challenges us to be amazed at the grace of God and to remember, as Lee pointed out, the truth of we were all, as Paul said to the Ephesians, objects of, of, of wrath. But God, who is great in love and grace, made us trophies for His glory. Oh, God is at work in the hearts of people all over the planet. And it's so easy for me, and perhaps you can relate to this, to lump people into a category of less deserving. Just sort of this this faceless group of less deserving people. And in those moments, it's often when the Spirit of God speaks into my life and reminds me that I'm part of a category of people that are also less deserving. It's called humanity. And so I think there are a couple of questions that arise from this lesson. God's redeeming grace knows no bounds. A couple of questions that, that, that we have to face. Do I, do we expect God's grace to be at work in the lives of nasty people? Defined according to our standards of nastiness.
Do we expect God to be at work in their lives? And if I believe that, and Scripture forces us to believe that with stories like this one, if I believe that, am I, am I willing to see them as loved by God one person at a time? And, and am I willing to put down my guard when it comes to being used by God, possibly in their lives? It's one thing to, to give mental assent to God's grace being at work in the lives of these people who I don't like or approve of. But am I willing to reckon with the possibility that perhaps God is wanting to use me in some way in their lives? Do we want to be a part of God's redemptive work in human hearts according to to his work and his time frame and his glorious plan, or will we miss out because we have our, our personal boundaries and our personal limits? God's redeeming grace knows no bounds. That is great cause for rejoicing, and it is greatly troubling. Second lesson, and you may think this is, this is the stretch. This is what Dave will be calling Chicago about. But when the idea first came to me, I, I, I thought, no, but it just it wouldn't let up as I, as I read and prayed and thought through the text. This is a lesson from, from Ruth, the woman, the individual. The lesson is to become like her. The lesson is to become like her. Think about the dialogue that we read between the characters of the story. And, and if you go home and finish reading Ruth, you'll, you'll unpack it even more. And <clears throat> Naomi is a slow learner. It takes some time. But I will say in her defense... Her world was rocked. Again, a woman who was living in a patriarchal culture whose, whose identity and survival depended upon being married and, and being the mother of children, especially sons. That was just the nature of the world in which she lived. So she had lost everything. She was an older woman. There was no social security in those days. No husband, no sons. Future was bleak. And she knows that it will be so for her daughters-in-law if they stay with her. So she encourages them to go back to their people and make a life for themselves. It, it may go better with you. Just return to where we've been living, girls. That would make so much sense because they were younger. And again, in a, in a society that defined a woman's worth by her children, at least they were young enough to find another husband and, and to have kids. They would be going back to their own culture and, and people and gods. So Orpah agreed to that, and she left. 
But Ruth, Ruth was crazy. She was committed to staying with Naomi. And, and honestly, from, from the human perspective at that point in time, it would have been so much easier for her to leave than stay. We can assume that she probably had family back in Moab. She knew the traditions. She knew the culture. Might have been things as seemingly insignificant as food preferences. Maybe language. The traditions of the people. And Ruth chose to go with her mother-in-law to experience all of these new things and all of these challenges, to be a Moabite woman in a land where the Moabites were condemned, at least by some people in that culture. It would have made so much sense for her to leave. And I can't help but think that leaving would have been easier than staying in some ways. But she made the choice to stay. And how do we explain this? Once again, I, I camp on God's grace. <laughs> it's interesting to, to read the commentators and the scholars. To, they try to, as I mentioned earlier, try to, to figure out the the, the blessing. How is, it, how is it that Ruth, the foreigner, the, the, the cursed Moabite, gets included into to the lineage of, of Jesus, great-grandmother of, of King David? A lot of different speculations on that, but I, I think the one that makes the most sense and I think strikes home for me and hopefully for us is that when Ruth left to go with Naomi, she was leaving everything behind for the sake of her mother-in-law. She gave up her practices. She gave up her traditions She gave up her cultural background. She gave up her gods. And in the ancient culture, the people often thought, N.T. Wright does a great job with this in his book that our Connect group has been reading. The god was only the god of, of the certain land in which they lived. And so as she left Moab, she was leaving behind her gods. I think that's significant. God's grace was at work in her life and she was willing to leave behind those things that she cherished and was counted by God and blessed by God, obviously, as an Israelite. Her heart had changed by the grace of God. Do you see the story within the story here? And the foreigner, 
the foreigner by God's grace does what is honorable and exceedingly noble in the eyes of God. The foreigner does that which God calls you and me as his people to do on a daily basis. We have been called to follow after Jesus and to leave behind those things that are so familiar and so known and so comfortable. Those things where if we allow ourselves to really be open to the scrutiny of the Spirit in our lives, those things that perhaps have become gods to us. Things that bring us security. Things that bring us comfort. Things that bring us a sense of of safety and, and certainty. And I think, I think what what we can take from this story, again, not that, not that the story itself talks about it, but, but I feel that there is, there's a sense of permission that we can have when we recognize that God takes the foreigner to remind us of who he has called us as his people to be. And are we willing to take those steps? Are we willing to leave behind? Are we willing to, am I willing to see those groups that cause me such feelings of disgust and angst? Am I willing to recognize that they are individuals who are created in the image of God and loved by Him and in desperate need of redemption in the same way that I was, in the same way that you were? Whether or not we Realized it until later. Wow, what God has done. Do you know Ruth's name is derived from a couple of Hebrew words? One means friend or friendship. And another means to water abundantly. Wow, is that what Ruth did? She befriended and she watered Naomi's life abundantly. My brothers and my sisters, I think if we're willing to recognize that God's grace knows no bounds and he is always at work in the hearts of persons, that may set us up to, to be looking, to be expecting where God's grace might be creating a, a crack in what seems to be a, a strongly fortified or fortressed heart. That God's grace may be creating thinking in the mind of a person that, that, that is unlike things that they have thought before. That God's grace is beginning to, to draw a person in our lives who we would rather have nothing to do with person who we would just rather not face, rather not deal with. Everything that they stand for is hurtful in our lives and disgusting to us. Is it possible if we embrace that God's grace is always at work, we might even find ourselves looking for signs of overthrow. Signs that God is at work about to topple their kingdom 
for his glory. Are we willing to embrace that truth and to recognize that in the story of Ruth, it seems to me that in many ways there is an amazing parallel to the life that Jesus lived. We think of what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2, and he he left the glories of heaven and, and came to this broken world. And he didn't live aloofly. He mixed it up, rolled up his sleeves and walked into the mess and lived a life of refreshment and friendship leading to the redemption of many. Praise team, come on up and prepare to lead us as we respond this morning. Allow me to pray for us as they come. Father, we are grateful this morning for your word, grateful for the story of Ruth, amazed at your abundant grace that was at work in Ruth's life long before she had an awareness of it, long before she ever embraced you as her God. And yet, we look at the end of the story and we look at the lineage of Jesus and we recognize that that in that Moabite woman, you did an amazing work. Another trophy redeemed by you for your great glory. And we are challenged, Father, to, to embrace that you are still doing that and that you are doing that in the lives of people for whom we can't imagine redemption. And so we thank you. Thank you and ask that you would remind us day in and day out as often as is necessary that we too were part of an unsavory group called humanity in desperate need of redemption. We who so easily compare our sin with others and, and rationalize it and make ourselves more comfortable. Oh God, remind us sin is sin. And, for it is, and it's for that sin that Jesus willingly hung on the cross to redeem us and to save us from ourselves. Save us from our rejection of wanting to be God in your place. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts and our lives so that we might be willing participants wherever, whenever, you might choose to call us into your redemptive work in the lives of others, we ask in Jesus' name.